Hello and welcome to this edition of the ILO's Future of Work podcast. I'm Eckhard Ernst, economist at the ILO. And I'm Aisha Piotti, director of artificial intelligence policy at the Center for Law and Economics at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, ETH Zurich, as well as the managing partner of the Swiss-based firm Reg Horizon. This edition of the Future of Work podcast is a co-production with Geneva Macrolabs, Rec Horizon and the Center for Law and Economics at the ETH Zurich. Have you ever talked to a computer during an interview? Have you ever been made aware of a machine screening your CV? Or did you ever get the impression that you had been selected by an algorithm for a job you interviewed for? And how did this make you feel? Today, we want to explore the rising use of artificial intelligence in the hiring process. And to explore this topic, we could not have a better guest than Mona Sloan. Mona is research assistant professor at the New York University Tandon School of Engineering and senior research scientist at the NYU Center for Responsible AI. She is also principal investigator at the Tübingen AI Center of the Eberhard Karls University Tübingen in Germany. Mona, welcome to the Future of Work podcast. You have worked extensively on the role of AI in the hiring process. Can you tell us a bit more about your research? Of course. Thank you so much, Ekahad and Aisha, for having me. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, I am very happy to talk about my work. I should say that I am a sociologist, and as such, I am mostly interested sort of generally in the ways in which AI expresses and constitutes social relations and how AI has become integral to how we organize society. And one of my main interests is how AI affects discretionary decision-making in the professions and in recruiting specifically. And so I currently conduct extensive research, extensive qualitative research by way of interviews with recruiters, with talent acquisition managers, with sourcers, and also with HR tech vendors um, to understand how AI shifts and changes and shapes professional um, decision-making in the profession of recruiting. Excellent. Thank you. So we have heard that policymakers have become increasingly active to ensure a safe and fair use of these tools and to prevent discrimination during the hiring process. The European Union, uh, for instance, has been particularly active, but we also see regulatory activity in other countries, such as the United States, where you are based. So, Mona, uh, you're based in New York in particular. Can you tell us a bit more about the discussion among policymakers in the U.S.? and compare this with the situation in Europe that you also know very well? Thank you for that great question. I think it's very important to um, have a good understanding how AI regulation is forming uh, on both sides of the pond, as it were. And indeed, there are um, there's a similar spirit, but a very sort of different approach to how policymakers actually come at the problem of AI regulation. So in Europe, of course, we have um, the European Commission who um, has uh, crafted the EU AI Act that we are all expecting to kick in um, sometime this year. And that regulation is what we would call an omnibus regulation. So a big um, regulatory framework that has been in the making for a very long time that has 
one sort of approach for AI as a sort of almost super technology that affects all areas of um, social life. And that approach is risk-based. Um, so we have almost a top-down sort of way of mitigating the risk that AI that AI is posing potentially to citizens and to society. And then in the United States, on the federal level, we have um, comparable attempts in that there are attempts to introduce bills that uh, similarly regulate uh, AI as a general purpose technology. Um, for example, we had the algorithmic um, um, act that was introduced in 2019, but those haven't really come to fruition yet. What we see instead in the United States is a more localized approach whereby local policymakers, either on the state level or on the even more local level, so in city governments, approach specific AI problems in sort of smaller regulatory frameworks. This is sort of a phenomenon that Stefan Verholtz, who's the co-director of the GovLab and I have called AI localism. And in AI localism, we have, as I said, specific problems that are addressed. And one of the sort of flagship um, bills that we have here in New York on AI is indeed on the use of AI tools in hiring and employment. And that bill was signed into law last year. It's, it was supposed to be enacted in January 2023. It was, it's currently a little bit on pause because uh, regulators realized that they wanted a little bit more input from stakeholders. But that bill has very specific um, mandates with regards to how essentially AI-driven technology in the HR sector is being uh, sort of assessed um, as it enters the market and affects recruiting. Very, very interesting, actually. So indeed, we see the regulatory landscape changing, right? And you talked about EU, you talked about New York. Um, but but at the same time, I think we are also seeing much higher pressure from civil society for companies to, in fact, comply, you know, not only with these changing rules, but also to ensure sort of ethical development and deployment of these technologies. So how do you see, Mona, companies handling this, um, you know, specifically in terms of providers of AI tools? In your uh, sort of ex experience, how are they reacting to these rising demands and these additional requirements? That is a great question, Aisha. So the interesting thing about AI in recruiting or AI in HR is that it often is sold as the solution to human bias. Um, so we do know that HR and recruiting particularly has forever been, you know, prone to human bias. Um, it's an old problem. Employment discrimination is an old problem. Employment discrimination is a problem that is um, addressed through existing and longstanding non-tech focused regulation, both in Europe, of course, and in the United States. And so some of these technologies are marketed as actually fixing various kinds of bias in the recruiting and assessment process. So that's, I think, 
an important piece of information. And um, when it comes to questions around compliance, we really are a little bit in a limbo space right now, whereby we know a lot about the regulatory frameworks and regulatory approaches, but they haven't actually been um, passed yet. So again, we're waiting for the EUAI Act. The New York City um, bill hasn't kicked in yet either. There are various bills that have kicked in, for example, the Illinois Interview Act, which focuses on regulating specifically interviewing software that is used in the recruiting process. But other than that, um, we're still waiting for those regulations to fully kick in and to sort of see what compliance actually looks like. And um, that means when, you know, when I talk to companies who design these tools and deploy these tools and make money of these tools, they do, of course, have a pressing interest in either being told or finding out what compliance, sufficient compliance actually could look like. Because of course, not knowing is a risk for them. And so I think there is an urgent need actually for um, innovating compliance in the context of AI regulation. And the reason why I'm saying that is because we have this um, uncertainty going on and in absence of clearer guidelines, we will inevitably fall into a sort of precedent rhythm whereby powerful actors will show us what an interpretation of this legislation could look like. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that those precedents are truly independent or they are sufficient. And so I think we really need um, an investment, and I mean that quite literally, into figuring out what compliance in the HR regulatory space could look like. Um, and I think it's it's imperative that that money is sort of made available for this as a research problem, as a problem for NGOs, um, for interdisciplinary research, for collaborations with industry, of course, with standards bodies and so on. Um, but it is currently a sort of, um, a little bit of a race to define what compliance means by precedent, I would say. I think that's that's really, really relevant, right? So what you've sort of pointed out is this gap in a way that exists. On the one hand, we have, you know, we're asking for compliance. We're saying you should be doing many of these things, but it's not so clear. So thank you for that. Very clear. So when I talk to uh, 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 to trade union activists in particular, but I think that's also true for, for people at, at business associations that, um, uh, employers association, I often get the impression that there's a strong sense of urgency to address the challenges those that you mentioned and others that these AI hiring tools pose. Uh, while at the same time, there's a lack of knowledge as to where and how these tools are being currently used and so what dangers they might pose. And we hear a lot uh, about biases and discrimination, but I think there's a lack of understanding what are these uh, potential uh, dangers that we haven't really kind of fully understood, and in particular, how trade unions can best support their members. So in your view, how should trade unions address these issues and how can policymakers support them, for instance, by requiring HR departments to fully disclose the use of such tools? 
Thank you, Eckhart. That also is a great and extremely important question. I want to start answering that by stating that very often AI technology can lead to sort of a furthering of power imbalances just by way of being very complex and being infrastructural to various organizational processes or business processes and that AI technologies get sort of secretly um, or quietly embedded into existing processes without knowledge of all the stakeholders or literacy around how these tools work, what their assumptions are, what data they're collecting, how they're analyzing the data and interacting um, dynamically with the environments that they're being embedded into. So that's a general um, sort of socio-technical dynamic that is unfolding. Of course, that it becomes quite acute when we have a, a growth of the mediating role that this technology plays vis-a-vis workers and employers. Um, because AI always is a scaling technology, it's deployed to um, increase efficiencies in decision-making and organizational decision-making. And so the opaqueness that is baked into the system is also scaled up um, when that happens. And I think at the minimum, what should be um, required really is that, as you said, Eckhart, HR departments um, provide registries for their workers stating, these are the technologies that we're using. When there are large corporations and they have sort of significant purchasing power in the HR tech market, so let's say McDonald's is buying a license for a tool, they have, of course, significant purchasing power, they could mandate more transparency from the AI vendor and could, for example, as part of the licensing or purchasing process, require more AI transparency and explainability. For example, they could ask, what are the assumptions that you bake into your system? What are What is the data that you're using? What are you optimizing for? What are the possibilities for AI transparency that can be provided for the people that get enrolled into the use of the system, so the workers? Um, and I think that is something that trade unions can concretely ask for. So basically um, create a space in which AI transparency and explainability is mandated by way of purchasing power, because I think that's sort of the more um, effective way. But then, of course, I want to give a, a shout out to Dr. Christina Kalkloff, who runs the Why Not Lab and works a lot with trade uh, unions on um, sort of the threats and, and and challenges, but also opportunities of new technology, specifically AI technology. And there's a lot of um, need for increased literacy, of course, here. And I think that is something where um, trade unions can more actively engage with scholars and researchers, um, but also with um, NGOs who are working on these problems, the space of accountable, fair, and transparent AI is 
large and it is growing and there's a lot of appetite for impact and for collaborations with organizations such as trade unions. So I think that's another thing that trade unionists could uh, embark upon. So Mona, this is thank you so much actually for what you've shared and 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 what I see a little bit here is, of course, the need uh, for, for for the work councils to be aware of what is happening and of course to be involved. Essentially, I I just wondering because I I heard something about you know in Germany I believe they have a process which is in place um, where. I don't remember if this is because of the law or it's just a practice where this is done. Um, so I was just wondering if you know a bit more about it and if you could share that and also whether such a system um, of kind of co-creation uh, or, or consultation would make sense in other parts of the world as well. Yes, thank you for that question. I will um, say that I'm not an expert in that regulation specifically in Germany, I have read about it a little bit, but I'm not an expert. But what I can say as a um, native German, but also as someone who has conducted a little bit of research on co-determination um, in German companies is that the social organization of a workers' council in Germany has tradition. There's tradition traditionally strong worker representation and participation in fundamental decisions about an organization by way of the elected workers' council representatives. And so it is somewhat unsurprising that an important topic such as the use of AI systems in the selection, assessment, and evaluation of workers is a workers' council topic and that workers' council representatives engage actively in questions around that. Um, so what I'm trying to say here is that this participation in questions around the use of AI in hiring assessment and evaluation flows from the um, strong worker organization and worker representation in German organizations. It is not something that flows from tech regulation. And that is something I think that's really interesting and relevant to understand um, the sort of cultural specificity, but then to also explore, can tech regulation actually be interpreted as a way to strengthen worker organization and worker participation? Um, so almost to flip the script, um, if we look at it in, the, in other cultural, contexts. And if you look in, in the US, interestingly enough, over the past three to four to five years, we've actually had increased unionization, actually in the tech sector, um, among quote unquote, white collar workers, um, and solidarity movements with um, quote unquote, blue collar workers, such as the Amazon warehouse workers. So there is something really interesting that is going on here around worker organizing and technology-driven technology organizational decision-making, control, um, and surveillance. So, yeah, that's that's what I would um, no, no, respond to that I, question. I, I love that. I love that. And I think this idea of flipping it, and perhaps that could be something to be looked more into, um, I think, absolutely. So thank you for sharing that. 
Yeah, I think that's a great way of, of uh, closing this, this podcast. So Monasloan, thank you very much for, for joining us today. And if you uh, want to find out more about Monas work and research, you can find links on the webpage of this podcast and on the ILO website. My thanks also to Aisha Piotti, who you have been a wonderful co-moderator. And so for now, let me uh, wish you goodbye. I hope you will join us again soon for another edition of the ILO Future of Work podcast. 